Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, shortage of supplies. How is the U.S. reacting? And carbon taxes and raises for politicians. Should that be the order of the day while we're in the midst of a pandemic? All a part of today's podcast. Thanks for listening. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We continue to see uh, the fallout from this pandemic, what it means, what it can mean as far as the economy, as far as uh, food prices. They now we could see rise. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be with you, Scott. So uh, your thoughts, your take on what the Prime Minister said this morning, it seems in these daily press conferences, uh, obviously there's only so much information that come out, then can come out, then can come out, uh, and then it's just more of reassur- uh, reassurance for Canadians. What did you take from the PM's presser today? Well, in a way, uh, n- nothing specific. I hate to say it to you like that, because um, this is an evolving story. And as you point out, much of it is saying the same thing over and over again. Repetition is good. It reinforces and drives points home so that we all at least can get the message and absorb. I think probably the most interesting thing is that he's likely going to have to recall Parliament. You'll recall that on uh, Friday, uh, he talked about increasing the wage subsidy to 75%. Uh, Minister Morneau and uh, Small Business Minister Ng are having a press conference this afternoon at 2, where they're going to talk a little bit more about that 75% wage subsidy. And we've learned from Andrew Shearer that he says, you know, I, I don't think that's consistent with what we passed here a week or so ago in our bailout package. And so I think the Prime Minister is also agreeing that, all right, maybe this is a little more than was covered in that first piece of legislation. Let's call you back and, and do some more. And none of this shocks me because we are making this up on the fly. Never before have we tried to shut down an economy, put it in hot idle mode, if you will, or pause mode for a period of three months. And so everyone's making this up on the fly. And if you hear of a good idea from I don't know, France or a good idea from the United States or a good idea from Mexico. Hey, let's try that here. Unfortunately, this is, or, or maybe even fortunately, this is not a benevolent dictatorship. Our prime minister cannot do just whatever he wants to do, and he only has so much authority from Parliament. So I wouldn't even be panicked about that bit of news that Parliament's being recalled. When will we see that? How long would it take for that to happen? And would we see, again, an abbreviated version of all of this? Yeah, I, I think the, the general understanding now is let's not put more people than we absolutely have to in Parliament. So I imagine you're looking at three dozen, four dozen parliamentarians in proportion to the different parties that have been elected. They'll be called to Ottawa. Uh, the bill will probably be negotiated mostly behind closed doors to get everybody on board, and then the voting will be more of a rubber stamp. Uh, it's not clear to me that that Andrew Scheer is upset about anything that Mr. Trudeau has proposed. He's just more asserting the fact that you can't do whatever you want without our approval. But it's possible the bill might be reformed. For instance, in England, the wage subsidy being offered there is 80%. Ours is 75%. I don't know if Mr. Scheer would like to see the number go up or go down, but these would be the things negotiated behind the scenes to get the bills approved.
Uh, last time we saw the House of Commons meet to uh, approve emergency mes- measures, most said it was just uh, you know part of the process, uh, and then it turned out that it, there was a, a legislation or policy put through or tried to put through, uh, which would see the government have increased power uh, and the ability to tax right up until I believe it was uh, January first, twenty twenty-two. Are we like uh, are we likely to see something try to be slipped through like that this time? No, no, I don't think so. Now, I want to say in fairness to the prime minister and others, the idea was they didn't want to have to keep doing these little recalls every two to three weeks. So can you give us more, not a complete, but more of a blank check to give us wiggle room to do these things? And clearly the sentiment in Parliament was, we trust you, but we only trust you this far. And so we'll give you this much wiggle room, but we're not going to give you the, the more blank check that you wanted. Uh, in fact, the general feeling was, let's give you some wiggle room until September 30th. That would be sort of a six-month span. And then let's see where we are there. And so I don't think the government is going to try to change that. But in terms of drafting the wording of this legislation, if, for instance, um, the finance minister wanted to take the subsidy from 75% to 85%, there would be enough wiggle room there. But in this case, he's taken the subsidy from 10% to 75%. I can't imagine there was that much wiggle room in the initial bill. Uh, we know that April 1st today, uh, the carbon tax has gone up, uh, raising the price of gasoline and other fuels, and as well pay raises uh, for our uh, federal leaders. Are you surprised that these weren't uh, rolled back for a while? I'm going to say no for this reason. This actually, the legislation around the pay raises goes back more than a decade. Anytime any politician talks about a pay raise, oh, there's hand-wringing, this isn't the right time, it's never the right time, you know, you should really work for free for us and what have you. And I, I don't agree with that. So what the government did 10 years ago was pass legislation that said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this out of the hands automatically at the start of a fiscal year, which is April 1st, you're going to get a pay raise equal to the rate of inflation, whatever the rate of inflation is. That's around 1.5%. Their pay, yes, it's a nice number, $178,000. 1.5% of that's around $2,600-$2,700. It's not wrong to say that they got a raise of thousands of dollars, but it's two thousands of dollars. It's not ten thousands of dollars. And and I, I don't really think this is I don't think we, the average person, should get upset with this. Teachers are striking for 1% to 2%. You know, this is very consistent with what other people are getting in the public sector. The carbon tax, here's your problem with the carbon tax. I just filed my 2019 taxes, and I've got my prebate for 2020 of the carbon tax, $224. That's up 50% from last year. Yes, the carbon tax is going from $20 a ton to $30 a ton of carbon dioxide. What that means at the pumps, roughly two cents a liter increase. Because I'm getting a prebate, I've been tracking this over the last year. I'm about even. The additional costs that I've faced week by week have been offset by the carbon tax prebate that I got a year ago. I don't think I'm any worse off where it's really trying to go up and what we think in the long term, forgetting about COVID-19 for a moment, is if we don't make businesses start to feel a little pain on this carbon tax. They won't change their ways. So I realize what people are saying. Let's not change anything. Uh, My my situations are bad. Forget about the rest of it. But if we still have this goal of fixing the environment, that's a 20, 30-year goal. Even deviating one, one year, I don't think it's a good idea. So 
let's focus on what we need to focus on, not worry about these things. Uh, we're still hearing lots of chatter around uh, shortages. Uh, the prime minister reassuring that you know they're they're just rationing what they have and making sure that it, it lasts through the tough times. Um, uh, what can we learn from what he's saying? Many are accusing him now of not being transparent enough. He was asked during the press conference about uh, the anticipated death rate, which they've, uh, I guess, published in the United States. And and many are saying that is being used as a stark reminder of how serious this is. Is the prime minister being transparent enough or is it a case of y- you don't want to create mass hysteria? Yeah, and this, this is the tough question for any politician. I, I really found it almost unbelievable yesterday in the American press conference that Donald Trump would look out into the audience and say, we think we will have done a good job if between 100,000 and 250,000 Americans die. I mean, that's an alarming number. Uh, I can tell you if that's what the Americans are looking at, you normally take a 1 to 10 ratio. So Canada would be 10,000 to 25,000 deaths. Uh, but that's based on a whole series of assumptions. And I'd like to believe that our assumptions are a little different than the Americans' assumptions. Uh, we are, to begin with, a much less densely populated country than the United States. Ten times the population, but in a smaller country than we have in Canada. Yes, we have some big cities, but even they aren't as densely populated as the Americans' biggest cities. I'm not sure the numbers are the same. But I'm also not sure at this time if it's good for mental health. Already people are feeling COVID fatigue. Uh, I've had some students telling me that they're, they're, they're very scared, uh, even though they're taking these social distancing opportunities. You know, what if I get it? What if I die? Imagine someone who's 20 years of age thinking about this mortality question. Normally at 20, your biggest concern is the party on Saturday night. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure if we share every last piece of information that we're really helping. At some point, I think we're playing up the anxiety and maybe that will translate into other actions we don't want. So he has to walk a really fine line. I think of him as a bit like, again, Mr. Rogers at this point. How can we have a candid conversation and yet at the same time not alarm you? And, and I, I, I don't know if those projections at this point are all that helpful. Do what you must do, and we'll see how this plays out. Um, what about post-COVID-19? Uh, lots of uh, mention of the R-word, recession, and, stu- and such. How concerned are you of our ability to get out of this once it stops? Will it be a sudden surge? Would, will it be a gradual thing, do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, again, first I've got to say my crystal ball is no clearer than anybody else's because we've never done this before. My mm-hmm. feeling is that when I lock people away, consumers away for three months, and I say to them, you can't go to a restaurant, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do something else. That's the one thing they now want to do desperately beyond all means. And so when the all clear is given, I think we're going to come out. And I think to the extent we have the ability, we're going to spend money again. So I think we're going to bounce back rather quickly. Now, on this question of the word recession, yes, I think we're going to have a recession, but it's unlike any other recession before because it's, it's a result of government policy. We are purposely shutting down the environment. I almost feel like we need another word for this. This is not a recession caused by a housing industry collapsing or a banking industry collapsing or, or other economic fundamentals. It, it really is a pause. And it's possible, Scott, it's possible, and again, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-like here, but it's possible this pause might last about a quarter and a half. 
In other words, if we can start to get the all clear by the end of June, certainly the second quarter, which we started today, is going to be awful. Unemployment numbers, awful. You're going to hear about unemployment of 15, maybe 20 percent, maybe 25 percent. And yes, shrinkage in the economy, 5, 10, maybe 15 percent of reduced spending because the money isn't flowing. But then we get to July, which is the start of the third quarter, and I think it's quite possible that we may be able to restart the economy fairly quickly and the money will start flowing. We might actually see quite an expansion. And if we only have one bad quarter, I don't want to call that a recession. I think I just want to call that a pause mandated by a severe illness in the world. Uh, change seems to be the new norm. We've all had to adapt to this. How many of these new realities will be permanent in the business world moving forward, do you think? Yeah, that, and again, that's a, that's a million-dollar question here. Um, people have discovered that they can do certain things by technology or they have discovered workarounds. Are they going to make it permanent? And all I can say, Scott, in, in my life, I've lived through various upsetting things like 9-11, as an example, or, or the recession of 2007-8, the difficult times in the early 1980s when interest rates got to 21%. And you always heard at the end of that, never again. I've learned my lesson, never again. And yet consumers quickly went back to their old habits. We are really creatures of inertia. We like doing what we like doing, and even if we have to temporarily change, how permanent is that going to be? I'm not clear on that. So uh, I, I think restaurants are still going to survive because by nature we're social animals. I don't think we all want to just have food delivered to our house from Skip the Dishes and eat with our family. I think we want to be out and about and, and joining others. I, I think most of this is going to be temporary. Now, these new plastic shields, I was at a grocery store yesterday, plastic shields separating me from the, um, the cashier who was ringing through my groceries. That might be a new permanent addition. Maybe we should try it before. On the other hand, when I looked at it, there's so much open air around it, I wondered if it was much more about you know, drama than it was about reality. Mm. I think those little droplets could still find their way around <laughs> that shield if, if absolutely happened. So uh, I, I don't know, based on what I've seen in the past, I don't know if this is going to change us fundamentally. I think we're all going into this as what we must do for now, not necessarily forever. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time, and you take care of yourself. I am. I'm doing well. All right. Prime Minister announcing that uh, because of the measures, new measures uh, being added to help Canadians, House of Commons coming back. When do you think we're likely to see that? And we remember last time this happened, it was all supposed to be a technicality to approve these emergency measures. And the PM tried to pull through a couple of uh, extra powers and some more money and time to, to take him to January 2022. Do you think we'll see any of that change this time? Um, well, with Easter being next week, I, I think that still matters to people. Um, I don't think we'll see it until after Easter unless there is a, they can find an agreement fairly quickly. So what do we have? Good Friday is next Friday. So uh, if, if not before Good Friday, I suspect it will be the week after. And I'll remember, originally they talked about coming back April 20th. Um, they haven't confirmed a date. Apparently, discussions are still ongoing between the deputy prime minister and the and the various house leaders of the parties. And will this be uh, pretty much a technicality, or will this be something opposition has to keep an eye on? 
No, it has to. Well, it started a little bit last night because I'm sure you've had calls in your show about this, Scott. So the, the government, of course, has announced, which could be a very good program, this wage subsidy program. And it changed the criteria from when it was originally announced last week, which was probably a good thing as well, because as you recall, it originally said it was going to be 10 percent. Now it says it's 75 percent. Pierre Polyev, the finance critic for the Conservatives, was out on social media last night saying, well, government, if you're going to do this, you actually need to call the House back soon because you would be contravening the original legislation that we passed. So, you know, he's doing his job in saying that, but it it, it pretends to the fact that uh, the government is going to continue to have, as they should, increased scrutiny around all of this. I believe, Scott, there's a finance committee hearing tomorrow with the finance minister. And you'll remember when we talked about it, this finance committee hearing tomorrow is to look at um, the measures that have been brought in to date. So parliamentary scrutiny is going to continue. Yes, there'll be some parliamentary games, uh, but I think they will all be um, posed in the name of making sure that the crisis is addressed in the best manner possible. What is the opposition role here, whatever the level of government is? Because obviously uh, Canadians, Ontarians love it when their politicians are all rowing in the same direction and not fighting over silly things. Uh, we love this united front that we're seeing. On the other hand, we want to make sure that everything's on the up and up. What is the opposition role here? How do they balance rowing in the same direction but raising their hand when, when well, I needed? Think, I think it's a great question. I think part of it is tone. I, I think if you looked at Polyev's commentary, and you know he can be pretty biting and partisan from time to time. Last night, he was less so for him in that regard. Look, I think you have to be legitimately a Team Canada member. I think that's the right way for the government to frame it. Certainly, they want to frame it that way so they don't get much criticism. But the opposition does have to make sure things work, much like the media. You were playing the Doug Ford press conference. I mean, people want clearer answers, I think, to certain questions, whether they be in the case of the Ford conference, and Trudeau had this as well, what what do the models say? Or in the case of the the government, they want their opposition asking, is this working? How's it going to work? Is this the right intention? Because if all these programs and all the measures the governments are announcing are designed to help people, the role of the opposition is to make sure that that is in fact happening and they aren't turning into missteps and poor policy. Um, carbon tax and uh, pay raises went into effect today. April 1st should not have been deferred. Uh, that would have required legislative payment. I mean, certainly you have an argument that uh, I think Andrew Shear said this at a press conference today, that uh, the, the $10 increase that was planned should have been deferred. Um, and on the pay raises, the way the politicians are sort of skating around that, and you're talking about the House of Commons, is they're going to donate, at least the Prime Minister and Andrew Shearer say they are, and others I'm sure will follow, donate the increases to charity. Um, again, both of those measures, Scott, would require Parliament to come back and make legislative changes. So, you were talking... Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what the opposition may offer, Scott, then when Parliament does come back, do they move on, on pay raises? Do they move on maybe carbon tax? That one's probably harder because there isn't the support among the minority parliament for the Conservatives to undo that, but maybe there's support uh, to deal with pay raises. Because in 2008, 2009, when Harper had his minority during the fiscal crisis, pay was frozen for three years for MPs.
How transparent should leaders be here? We certainly heard some stark uh, realities coming out of the U.S. yesterday. Their, their worst-case scenario with models showing they could be north of 200,000 in, in deaths and such. Uh, the prime minister asked about that today. Uh, should leaders be that transparent and, and use that honesty to more or less scare people into doing the right thing, or does that just create hysteria? I think they have to be responsible with the information they share, particularly these models, right? I mean, the, the, a lot of the questions the prime minister got today, uh, and I think uh, Premier Ford got one or two as well, as well. There's a story about this model that has a wor- you know, worst case uh, or the best yeah. case being this uh, social distancing and other things end in July. Um, you know, I, I don't know how helpful it is for the government to work through all the models, but if you look at the example of the um, public health uh, head in British Columbia, and it's lauded in today's Globe Mail editorial, she broke down a bunch of the models, walked people through them, then the health minister did the same thing. I think you have to look at how you present the information in a transparent way so that it's understood instead of throwing data and points and speculative modeling at people in a way that it's not understood. So it's also how you present the information and how much time you afford to, to doing it all. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and you be well. You too, my friend. Take care. Bye. All right, let's head down to the United States. The U.S. president says that people should be prepared for a rough couple of weeks for this pandemic. Uh, obviously, his tone has changed. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, and he is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, hearing some pretty stark numbers from models coming out of the U.S. in the last 24 hours or so. How is this playing in the United States? Is this moving from a hoax to reality? It's a, it's a pretty stark reminder. Yeah, I mean, look, President Trump has had a uh, market change in tune over the last, uh, I would say, week or so. And it really came to light uh, during the White House uh, task force briefing on Tuesday, when those models showed that in a best case scenario, the U.S. could uh, see anywhere between 100 and 240,000 deaths due to COVID-19. That's in a best case scenario. And that's only if uh, every American were to be practicing social distancing measures. We know that that's not a uniform policy across the United States, and it does increase the chances that there could be more than a quarter million people who end up dying from this virus. Uh, we certainly uh, saw the stories way back when of, of uh, those on March break uh, partying it up and such. Uh, we're certainly hearing now, uh, especially in Texas, uh, some of those people have become sick, some of those younger people and such. Uh, and then Florida has issued stay-at-home orders. So slowly this is starting to take effect. Uh, will we see more and more of states closing down like this? Well, I mean, it's possible. Look, Florida uh, only within the last hour put this stay-at-home order in place where there have been calls now from healthcare officials for the last several weeks, uh, well before spring break took place, uh, to have Florida enact some kind of uh, rule that would protect the most vulnerable population in the U.S., and that is the older citizens. The uh, Florida, rather, has the second oldest population in the country, yet for uh, you know a two-and-a-half-week period when spring break was on in the U.S., there were tens of thousands of people that were crowding on beaches. And what Governor Ron DeSantis originally did was ask uh, the Miami-Dade County area to put their own local rule in place. So what you saw were empty beaches on the east coast of Florida, and then you saw packed beaches 
on the west coast of Florida. Now we have Governor Ron DeSantis bowing to this pressure, putting this rule in place. There's a fear, though, that this is too little too late and that far too many people have been moving about within the state and then out of the state, potentially spreading this virus further. Uh, let's move to the other end of the state, up to uh, New York. Obviously, Governor Cuomo uh, having difficulty up there. Uh, what about the tone between the president and the governor? Look, this is an ongoing battle, uh, and it depends on the day, and it depends on uh, what the conversation is, because oftentimes you'll hear uh, Governor Cuomo lavish some praise on President Trump when things are working appropriately and when he understands that he's going to need something from the president. But then you'll hear the president kind of criticizing uh, Governor Cuomo in what his requests actually are. Recently, within the last 24 hours, we've heard uh, of further complaints from Governor Cuomo when it comes to uh, trying to purchase uh, personal protective equipment and equipment like ventilators, saying that because the national stockpiles are far too low, because President Trump says that they have 10,000, uh, you know, sitting in, in, in their reserves, which is not nearly enough for New York, let alone the entire country. Uh, you hear Governor, Governor Cuomo say things like it feels like we're on eBay right now trying to bid against the federal government and trying to bid against private health care systems in order to obtain uh, any kind of equipment. And the more bids there are, the more people are looking for them the more expensive this stuff gets. Because you have to remember, the U.S. does not have a nationalized healthcare system. Everything is independent. Everything is private. And because of that, you have more and more people on an individual basis trying to go after the same equipment. What can the U.S. expect in the next week? What will Donald Trump's biggest challenges be moving forward for the next week or two? I think the biggest challenges for the administration might be watching these numbers climb ever higher when it comes to the rate of reported cases and the uh, the death toll that's going to follow along with that. If the U.S. Uh, health uh, health experts are correct and the U.S. approaches a peak sometime within the next two weeks, A, we're going to see those reported cases continue to skyrocket, potentially up into the millions. Uh, but there's also going to be a correspondent death rate that could top out at 3,500 people Per day, And those are going to be uh, incredible numbers to try and get uh, your head around as an average person, let alone as uh, the leader of this country. And this is ultimately going to have you know, ramifications down the line, whether it's political, whether it's a, a further health care crisis. The numbers are big. The numbers are not going down. Uh, and there are questions now as to whether or not the federal government, you know, therefore Donald Trump, acted too late in trying to mitigate uh, the, uh, measures to try and control this virus. Uh, Donald Trump, we've seen uh, a divisive person, even runs his businesses this way, will pit uh, executives against each other and such, we have heard. Um, Is he taking a more unifying tone now? Uh, How does a divisive leader unite a country? Well, I think, I mean, from what we've been seeing, uh, President Trump has been uh, doing what he can to answer questions to the best of his ability, but he's really been relying more on uh, the people inside the coronavirus task force uh, to be able to get these messages out. And this is the first time that we've really seen the White House put science into the spotlight. We know that this is a government that has actively worked to kind of undermine, uh, you know, scientific data, particularly when it comes to the environment or when it comes to climate. We now have the president actively using science and data-based uh, facts in order to present best and worst case scenarios for the public, there is some criticism from people within the Republican Party and from the president's base that there's too much focus on the negative, but it's simply the negative needs to be told in order to try and avoid any kind of worst case scenario. And I think that's simply what we're seeing President Trump try to do right now is putting facts first. And this is a first 
from this administration. Uh, we've seen uh, information come out today uh, talking about Iran and uh, targeting U.S. Uh, forces and such. Uh, is this a, d- a distraction? Uh, does, does Donald Trump having a difficult time staying on this page? How does he distract people from this? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the topic of, of what's going on uh, in, in you know, terms of foreign news, what Iran or whether or not it's issues uh, with Russia trying to spread propaganda about this virus and uh, having that impact uh, Americans. Uh, it's happening all the time. It happened during impeachment. It happens during any kind of major crisis that's going on in the United States. And President Trump uh, has done his best to not bring that into the mix. Oftentimes during these press briefings, there will be members of the media who have an agenda that they need to cover. And oftentimes it includes bringing up potential criticisms over Iran or over China. And Donald Trump has done what he can to try and avert going too far into a hole that it's difficult to get out of and brings it back to simply he is uh, in the mindset right now of trying to focus on this country and this health crisis and understanding that, yes, there is a world of crisis going on that's impacting the United States. He's trying to make sure that the focus is directly on this virus and not distracted from that. Has Donald Trump reacted to the information that Russia is spreading propaganda that says the U.S. actually started this in China? Well, look, the president uh, has been asked questions numerous times uh, about, you know, the origins of this virus and his language over uh, when he was simply calling this, you know, quote, the Wuhan virus or the China virus. Uh, He's since Mm -hmm. backed away from that. He has since understood that this is more than just a country. This is uh, a a pandemic that has impacted uh, one country and spread to the rest of the world and understanding that this is what Russia does. Russia pushes propaganda. We saw this in 2016. We've been seeing it off and on uh, in the years since the election. Uh, You know, you eventually have to kind of work it into your day-to-day nature that Russia is going to go about doing these things. You have uh, members of of, uh, federal law enforcement agencies who are going to be trying to deal with with what Russia is doing and ultimately hope that the American public is listening to the facts that are coming from the White House and coming from the scientists and not paying attention to what might pop up on their Facebook. What is Donald Trump's next move? Will we see anything major announced this week? as far as closures or or anything of that nature? He has not signaled that he's going to put any kind of blanket stay-at-home order in effect. You know, this is is a a country of federalism where governors uh, make their own calls for what they think is going to be in the best interest of of their residents in their state, and President Trump is not getting in the way of that. Uh, He's simply offering these guidelines. I think we could see a potential for further use of his powers to compel manufacturers and companies to start uh, developing and and, uh, making and building new supplies when it comes to personal protective equipment and ventilators. But outside of that, we haven't seen the president trying to use the strong arm of the law to enforce anything, even though healthcare uh, 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 professionals around the country have been asking for a national rollout of the stay-at-home order because it's the only way you're going to compel these states like the Dakotas and Nebraska and Arkansas who have no measures in place to do something to stop the spread of this virus. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. As uh, we have mentioned earlier uh, today, April 1st, saw the carbon tax in uh, Canada, in Ontario specifically, the the uh, provinces that didn't have uh, their own uh, carbon program, uh, have seen uh, their carbon taxes increase, gas prices going up as a result of this. 
tax on fossil fuel, and also a MP pay raise. Politicians got a pay raise today. Some of them are stepping out and saying, well, we're donating it to charity. But you have to wonder, the last time the House was together, why they didn't just uh, take care of all of this. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, good to be here, Scott, especially on today, April Fool's, for all of us who are uh, gassing up or heating up or eating out. There you go. Uh, Are you surprised? Obviously, you are. Uh, Carbon tax goes into effect today with one hand. uh, The government is handing us aid to get us through COVID-19. On the other, they're introducing a new tax. Or is it, as the Prime Minister says, this is just another revenue stream for Canadians? (laughs) Well, uh, we haven't seen the check in the mail. Uh, No one's getting any money at this point, but you are getting a tax at this point. So, uh, you know, I can't think of any other country in the world that is fighting the COVID virus as gallantly as we are, and and, and they're doing their job as well, where the government has continued uh, down this road of compounding the misery and the difficulty and the concern uh, that people have by adding a tax. And, of course, you know, you get the naysayers out there. Oh, yeah, but gas is 75, 76 cents a liter or less. Who cares? I'm not concerned about gasoline as it stands today. I'm concerned where it's going to be in six months with an additional uh, you know, seven cents a liter. Uh, I'm concerned about uh, natural gas and propane, which didn't drop uh, in the way gasoline has, or diesel, which will add another two, three, four hundred dollars to your bill directly. Not to mention the effect to the cascading effect of these higher taxes as they make their way through the economy. And you know, Scott, let's not forget, quite apart from the carbon tax that we pay for directly, the indirect tax to manufacturers people who make a living in this province and in this country are also subjected to a side tax, which they have to pass on. So there are secondary effects and there's double taxation. And of course, anybody who uses the argument, and I've seen a few smarty pants do this kind of thing where they say, oh, it's a rebate. Listen, colder weather, more taxes, secondary taxes, taxes on uh, inflation in terms of trucking and bringing products to, uh, to market to your grocery stores. Those are not covered by the rebate. So I think, uh, uh, you know, what's been a year since many people received anywhere from 100 to 307 bucks in rebate. How's it working out for you? Because frankly, a lot of us have spent it and realized now with the higher cost of groceries, among other things, uh, we're actually short. And uh, we, had, we just had viruses hitting at a time when the economy is slowing down. These guys compound the problem rather ignorantly and arrogantly. And I think uh, it's all the reason why. If anybody voted for these folks last election and thought they had reason for it, you can't afford them this election. Um, we had Marvin Ryder, business professor at McMaster University, on earlier, and we don't have to play the clip, Will, but he said that he just did his tax, and he's getting 250 or 200 to 250 back on all of this. Yeah, that's nice, except that he's now got to fork out, as I put in a blog yesterday, as well as at Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, he's going to be paying this year alone using 2000 and I'm going to assume he's on natural gas uses a GTA he's going to be paying about 170 160 dollars for his natural gas now I assume he drives uh, so he's probably going to have to pay another 136 and I assume of course that he does eat does does go to a grocery store look for a five or seven cent uh, increase in the cost of groceries half of which can be directly traced to these carbon taxes so again Smart people are deliberately not looking any further. And I think it's the deliberately not looking any further that has me concerned because it doesn't take into account the cascading effects of these higher prices on things like diesel, which is 
really uh, an energy that's at the cornerstone of our economy, even in difficult times. Don't believe me? Scott, uh, the price of diesel on global markets has dropped 40 to 50 cents a gallon, or about 12 cents a liter. Gasoline has tanked 60 cents a liter. And so diesel has now been taxed an additional three cents. Where do you think that's going to be spent? Where do you think that mm. money is going to come from? Who is going to pay for it? And that is not, and I repeat, not covered by the Trudeau Liberal rebate. So anybody who uh, goes along with this, which is, I believe to be a colossal bribe, uh, is only fooling themselves. And at a time when people are desperate and have no money and are worried about how they're going to put food on the table, much, pay, much less pay for rent, uh, this is not just a joke. Uh, those who are smarter ought to know better because now they're being called on. I would call on smart people who make those kind of comments right here and now. Get your facts together because it's just lazy and sloppy uh, observations that are leading to this kind of uh, policy that will have no positive effect on the economy, certainly no positive effect on the environment. It's funny that nothing gets in the way of the fight against COVID-19 except the carbon tax and uh, pay raises. Anyway, well, uh, what I happens after... He got, got $15 million bucks last year to talk about uh, climate change rather than talk about its, its own bloody mandate, which is uh, Medicare, which is to ensure the safety of people. Blacklock's reporter came out and said it got uh, what, 50, 56, 560,000, 56, I can't remember the amount. I'll have to look at it this morning, but it's a very interesting, very revealing snippet. This government and their friends in the NDP, Green, and Bloc backed the wrong crisis. People are now wait, uh, waiting to see when they'll actually smarten up. But this morning it cleared to me that they don't know how to smarten up and that they're willing to push uh, an agenda which has no effect, has not killed anybody, and in fact is probably going to do a lot of economic damage. Then it'll be followed up by the clean fuel standard. We'll talk about that some other time. But uh, folks, you are being sold a bill of goods, and smart people who are advocating and be defending this ought to know better. Shame on them. What happens after COVID nineteen? Um, uh, are you know? And, and I don't want to debate climate change here because I think we no. all realize things are changing. It's just the way in which you go about combating all of this. But but some activists are pointing out on how much the pollution has dropped since COVID nineteen, proving that we can do this. Uh, is this going to stall or energize those activists? So, do you think that shutting the economy down, having us all living in the state of nature, eating acorns, is going to somehow bring us uh, to a point where we have less carbon in the air? Yeah. That's a pretty silly argument, not you, but they, they would make. Yeah. But I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, these, they have now found, and I think this is true of almost all the climate activists, they're going into overdrive with silliness because they realize uh, that the crisis that is most concerning and is a veritable threat to society is pandemics, not climate alarmism or worried about an inert gas. If people are so concerned about carbon, uh, perhaps they ought to consider that every time they go into a hothouse, and they breathe in, and uh, this provides plants life that it needs to uh, grow, you know, more more effectively. It has no effect on your life. It doesn't hurt to have carbon in the air. It's part of photosynthesis. What concerns me is that uh, smart people who ought to know a little bit better, and I'm talking here scientists as well, are behaving more like politicians, coming out with ideas, quote unquote, consensus. You really spend any time in science. I've got three of them in my family, including my wife. Well, say that word does not exist in science. So why it's being trotted out, uh, this is really a political game. And for the past few years, we've had people uh, creating something called a credit carbon emissions market. There it's worth billions of dollars, not trillions of dollars. That's where these folks are making their money. That's why they're advocating the move away from fossil fuels. But funny enough, you want to do, uh, you want to use some rubbing compound today, or you want to keep your hands clean or wear a mask or put on a gown. Guess where all that comes from? 
It doesn't come mm. from hemp. It doesn't come from uh, you know thin air. It actually comes from fossil fuels and carbon. So, look, I think there there is something wrong here. Where right is wrong and wrong is right. Uh, people, I think, are now realizing uh, that they've been gamed, that they've been played, and with today's carbon tax being imposed on them by the Trudeauites and their friends and the uh, progressive friends in the bloc, the Greens and the NDP. I think people now realize that uh, you know there are very few people who have their back, and intellectually, it's only dishonest. It's economically damaging for the long term. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Stay safe. Good to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Cheers. All right. Uh, the U.N. saying that this pandemic is the biggest crisis that our world has seen since World War II. Also uh, hearing about Russia interference again, trying to spread uh, conspiracy theories that include that this all started in the U.S. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. How are oh, you doing? I hope, and I hope everybody there is staying well. And I hope you are, too. Uh, your thoughts. Uh, we haven't talked in a long time, but before we get into this, your thoughts on where Canada is and, and, and how our leaders are handling all of this. And uh, as we move forward into, I guess, the third week of self-isolation, what are your thoughts? Well, depends on the question you ask. In terms of how our leader is handling it, I would broaden that out to say that essentially every leader in the world is now going to be tested on how they handle the crisis the normal initial response is go logically rally around the leader and it's time to you know show the flag and and so normally the popularity of the leader goes up if the if the leader handles things well we've had a, a series of leaders around the world who are essentially uh, entertaining disruptors and now they have to govern and that's certainly the case not in our not in Canada uh, we've not gone down that that route I, I think the polls are showing that our leader is getting, uh, you know, Trudeau comes out every day and, and says in a very calm and reassuring voice, very firm and strong things, and backs it up with action. And I think that in terms of Canada so far, the, uh, the, I think the ratings will be good for our leader. Uh, I have to ask you, simply because there are neighbors, what about the United States uh, specifically in how Donald Trump has sort of changed his perspective in all of this? And as you've said, many leaders are, are defined at these moments, uh, yet his approval rating still is going up. Well, actually, the most recent, <laughs> as of this morning, uh, leaders around the world have had an initial, in the Western world, uh, have had an initial bump. And that has been the case for Donald Trump, where his approval ratings came even close to 50 percent for the first time in his uh, in his presidency. Uh, he didn't crack the 50 percent mark. But as of this morning, the most recent poll that's come out, and remember, these are snapshots, uh, and I want to broaden it out to say that uh, let's let's give the most recent poll. The most recent poll shows that approval for how he's handling this, or disapproval for how he's handling it, has gone up as well. It's gone up from 43% disapproving to 47%, a big jump. So no one knows how this will crystallize. Going down the road, as the magnitude sinks in of everyone and as the crisis takes a toll on people's lives and on the economy and just on our sense of well-being, how this will crystallize, uh, and remember 2020 November, 
is the election in the U.S. is, is so far unclear. What about your thoughts on them releasing uh, death toll estimates? Uh, the Prime Minister was questioned today whether he was being transparent enough on what some of their models show. Uh, the models in the United States s- seem very bleak. I mean, they're talking about over 200,000 possibly uh, could, could die from this. Uh, your thoughts on that approach? Well, again, going back to how Donald Trump has handled this, he immediately said it was a hoax. And then yeah. he said, well, it's going to go away all by itself, and as the weather changes, it will disappear. Then he said, we, we, we have it under control. And then, you know, clearly it isn't. So his message has evolved. And um, in terms of the total numbers, the symbolic number of the number of people killed after 9-11 uh, compared to by this crisis, the U.S. has already soared past that. Yesterday, they, it was 3,000. Now it's already up over 4,000. So the magnitude of the crisis in terms of simply, you know, the death toll is there. Now, in terms of, since you're asking about the politics of it and the U.S., uh, Donald Trump has um, put himself as a wartime leader, and wartime leaders will be affected by how they conduct the war, and how this goes in the U.S. is totally unknown. If, at the moment, he's framing it, we get anything less than a million people killed, that's a victory. Yeah. And it's all due to my leadership. Well, let's go back to uh, previous crises. Remember that I've been, I've been asking, others have been asking, is this Donald Trump's Katrina moment? That is, uh, George Bush was a very popular president until Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana. And then he came on air and said, oh, you're doing a heck of a, heck of a job there, uh, Ronnie, uh, yeah, Brownie. Uh, that was the head of FEMA. And people mm-hmm. were drowning and in Louisiana at that point, and George Bush never recovered from that. So the question is, since these are one-hour shows that Trump can dominate every day, is this? But the the simple message through all of them is, you're doing a heck of a job, Donnie. Yeah. And we'll have to see, since there's a disconnect between what people feel on the ground and what the governors are saying, governors including in red states are saying, and what the president is saying. We'll have to see how it all washes out. Let's talk about how the rest of the world is reacting to this. Uh, the UN said this is uh, the biggest event crisis since World War II. Yes. Uh, uh, accurate? I mean, certainly a different type of war, that's for sure. Well, he said, it, uh, he said since we're in World War II, but he said since the founding of the United Nations, that mm. is the modern international organization as we have known it, uh, this is the biggest crisis since the founding. After you know the, the UN as we know it today came together in its form right after this Second World War, and Canada played a, a major role in that. Uh, we can go into details on it, but Canada was, is a big supporter of multilateralism because we thrive in a multilateral world where interdependence interdependence rules the day. Uh, the Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres said the world is only as strong as our weakest health system. If we do not act decisively now, I fear the virus will establish a foothold in the most fragile countries, leaving the whole world vulnerable as it continues to circle the planet, paying no mind to borders. Now, he was uh, UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees before he took over as Secretary General, and before that he was Prime Minister of Portugal. He is reminding us that, in a very literal sense, we are all, all in this together. We have... The global trend right now and the choice facing us 
and the pressures are on us to make this choice between isolationism and cooperation. Isolationism is very much um, the first turn to that people can take. I, I was just listening to the news here in town. Ottawa, where we live, right on the border with Quebec, people are going to be checked as they cross the border yeah. in a random way by the police force of Quebec. So are we moving from the borderless world that we all talked about as the basis of our peace and prosperity and stability since the Second World War, giving way, Scott, to a Lord of the Flies world. That mm. is, a world, as Thomas Hobbes put it, as a world of each against all. There is a real danger that as the crisis proceeds, we will fall back on the most primitive and urgent uh, logical responses in our mind to protect ourselves through separation and isolation. Uh, lots of conspiracy theories around yeah. this uh, chaos. Uh, we know this has been traced back to a wet wildlife uh, food market in Wuhan and, and, and spread very similar to the way SARS uh, has spread, although there are conspiracy theories out there that say this, this originated in the U.S. and was biological warfare. Your yeah. thoughts and the Russian propaganda that's coming yeah. out of this? Well, Ken, if we can broaden that slightly, uh, this is a world where we now have what I've been dubbing the Mussolini moment. That is, it's a possibility where uh, leaders of states can now grab more power to themselves. You'll have to sacrifice liberty for your security. And uh, I'm going a bit fast and loose with Italian history there, mm -hmm. but we already see a situation where leaders around the world are grabbing for more power. Are they going to give it back? In Hungary, we have a situation where the leader, or Viktor Orban, has said, I now have the power to rule by decree and with no end in sight. Yeah. So, so is this going to be a situation where that happens? Um, and back, the, the, the issue then becomes, in addition to that, grab for power by people who have authoritarian tendencies, or even if they don't, will they ever give it up? We have the active measures campaign, apparently by both Russia and China, saying democracy doesn't work. So they are using the crisis to spread misinformation that you referred to, but also to put forth the proposition in China's case, look, democracy doesn't work. You need to look at our kind of political system. Uh, speaking of China, uh, are you surprised we haven't heard more from them on this? Uh, any response to the world crisis chaos that they have that they've get that they've created uh, that that originated from their country. Um, how is this going to affect them moving forward and the world's perception of China? Well, this is another one of those potential moments in geopolitics. How again? While we're we're talking about people dying and people getting ill, and we're talking about the implications of it geopolitically and politically and other ways, and that's our job, I guess. But we have to remember why we're doing it. Is this a situation where uh, others have called, and I've uh, crystallizing for me, is this a Suez moment? That is, a moment when uh, the British Empire exerted, exerted itself at the Suez crisis, grabbing the Suez, and they were revealed as no longer a major superpower. And it was a geopolitical shift that uh, basically ended the UK's role in the world as in the former way, and they've had to reassert it in other ways. Is this a time when the geopolitics of the world is shifting so that the U.S. 
which may be fumbling its response to the crisis, but also earlier had said, we don't want to lead. China is now saying, we want to lead. We have the ability to lead. We've shown you we have the ability to lead. And not only that, but we are now going to come to the aid of countries uh, that are suffering. We've gone through it. We've mastered it. We're better than others. It may have been a conspiracy against us. But they are now asserting, they're using this crisis in this fashion to assert their leadership to be a global, the global and dominant leader as we go forward. How do you sell that, though, when the, the problem originated with a contaminated food chain? How do you sell 5G when you can't keep your people safe? Well, you, you spin it so that, it, as you mentioned, it's, it really wasn't us. It was a conspiracy against us. It was really the U.S., and that's been picked up. Uh, Russia and others are picking that up. So it wasn't us originally, uh, but we've dealt with it so well that we can now help others, and here we are helping others, so focus on us helping others rather than on where it originated. That's how they're spinning it. Whether they get away with it or not, whether it succeeds, I should put it, or not, uh, remains to be seen. Do you think uh, uh, the rest of the world is going to accept that after they are living the reality of all of this? People will start focusing... I think, on their own government and their own immediate safety rather than these global implications you and I are discussing. And China, meanwhile, is using its uh, influence uh, here in Canada uh, to say through friendly groups here in Canada, donations have been made by China to help Canadians. And they're doing this around the world, of course, and in particular in China, in Africa. So uh, China is doing its best at the minute to capitalize on the situation, whether they succeed or not, does remain an open question. But when you start getting uh, medical supplies that are badly needed through the generosity and the efficiency of the Chinese government, then that becomes the story, not yesterday's story, of where it started. That being said, I mean, that's just reciprocating uh, uh, what we have already done when we sent them 16 tons of medical supplies back in February. So yes. are they really doing anything better than any anybody else? How are they viewed as the savior here? Well, if anything, I think it's the exact opposite. That's where I put it. It remains to be seen how this washes out. Uh, as, as we are locked down for not days but weeks and not a month but into many months, how will this crystallize in terms of opinion regarding where we talk, you started to ask about Donald Trump and our own leader? Uh, how, will it crystallize, how will this crystallize globally as well? Are we heading toward, because you asked about the United Nations, are we heading toward a world of more isolation or more cooperation? If we are truly viewed as all in this together, there will be a UN and global response. By the way, Canada is contributing money to that um, UN re call for global response. It's not clear who's going to end up gaining or losing favor, either immediately at home or around the world. Uh, getting back to Donald Trump, and, and you had mentioned something earlier that uh, these people are now, uh, these types of leaders are now having to govern. And by that, I mean leaders that try to divide or, yeah. uh, you know, even Donald Trump within his own business will, you know, it's well documented that he'll pit executive against each other and may the best person win sort of thing. How does a divisive leader, a, a person that there always has to be a winner and a loser here, how do you all of a sudden, unite a country? Well, um, 
his efforts to do so are being contested. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Governor Cuomo right now, who goes on air every day. There's a Cuomo show as well as a Trump show as well as a Trudeau show as well as, I guess, a, a Doug Ford show. So leaders are going on and putting out their vision of how they will govern. Donald Trump is now saying, I'm saving you, and I'm saving you by taking really strong measures as opposed to the you know, kind of fumbling, uh, take a look at the U.K., uh, where we had the same situation, where you know, we had a, an entertaining disruptor uh, who goes from Boris the Fund to you know, Boris the Fumbler. So... And he now has, is, is testing positive. Each of these leaders, including Donald Trump, will now have to make the case that they really govern on behalf of everyone. And that means that the Republican base, we, you and I have talked often about the base. Donald Trump's base is not just the evangelicals. It's the Republican Party of the United States. The grand old party backs him. Mm. So we have polls that show that Democrats took this uh, there was a partisan divide. Democrats took this, the crisis more seriously than Republicans early on. But as people then get caught up with it personally, as it hits the heartland, as governors there have to govern and their leader is saying, you know, uh, it's not a big deal. Oh, yes, now it's a big deal. The crystallization of blame lies ahead of us. And we aren't sure that those leaders who like to divide will come out of this ahead unless they can become uniters. And where, by the way, is Joe Biden? Joe Biden is hunkering down in his basement. He has no bully pulpit, and the president of the United States has a bully pulpit. So You bring up a valid point here, Elliot, and, and we've only got about a minute left yeah. here, but let me ask you that. Sure. What is opposition's role here? Because it's very important, and citizens like it when all the politicians, all levels of government get along and row in the same direction during a crisis, which you have to admit they've all been doing. So that being said, how does the opposition step out and say, but wait a sec, that's not right? Yes. How do you physically, actually, get your communications out when you were hunker, hunkering down in your basement as Joe Biden is forced to do, and the president has a daily bully pulpit, or in Canada's case, our, our leader comes out every day and where's the opposition? We at least have a parliament that occasionally functions and being called back in. We are in a situation where it's up to the parties now. I, my, my personal view of this is if the Democrats aren't using this time period to strategically put their resources together and get their message out in a way you and I are not hearing, but if they're advertising in those swing states, if they're getting a strategic alliance that can now be strengthened when they are forced off the air at a national level, well, they can come out okay on this. All they have to do, in a sense, is prove they're a better alternative to the leader if the leader's leadership turns out to be faulty. And that's the big question right now. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a fascinating uh, discussion. Thanks so much for the time, and uh, stay well. We'll chat again. Yeah, support our heroes. Stay at home. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Elliot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.